Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 15th, 2010. Get your thinking caps on. It's interview day today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there in the name of God, and we cover them here and, well, use the Bible to offer a corrective. Now, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith will be a controversial edition, and the reason why it, is, why it will be controversial is because uh, I have uh, an interview that I'll be playing that I recorded earlier today with Dan Kimball. Dan Kimball is the uh, pastor at Vintage Faith Lutheran, uh, not Lutheran, Vintage Faith Church in uh, Santa Cruz, California, and uh, he is uh, one of the guys who early on was part of the Emerging Church Conversation. And uh, last week, I've created controversy, not not intentionally, but I knew it would be controversial, controversy uh, regarding the fact that uh, I met with Dan, spent six hours with him. We went to the uh, grave of James Dean, and we talked uh, quite a bit of theology in that amount of time. And my assessment after coming back and meeting with him was that uh, what we're dealing with in Dan Kimball is a gentleman who was a brother in Christ, that he preaches, teaches, and confesses historic orthodoxy. Does that mean that uh, that I agree with all of his methodologies? No. Does that mean that if we have a difference of opinion as to what the Scriptures say and teach regarding uh, the methodologies that we are to approach him as a Christian brother? That's exactly what it means. It means we approach him as a Christian brother. Now, uh, when I posted that information up, uh, there was uh, a bit of controversy that occurred on my Facebook wall. Dan saw it and uh, and asked if he could help, and I said, sure, I think the way that you could help would be if you came on the program so that people can hear from you yourself, in your own voice, what you believe, teach, and confess. That being the case, you need to understand that the purpose of this interview was not to address every single issue uh, brought up by the emergent church or every single question uh, regarding everything that Dan has written. 
The purpose of this interview was really to focus in on and give Dan an opportunity for him to say what it is that he believes, teaches, and confesses. And during the interview, Dan does that in spades. There should be no question at the end of this as to what as to what Dan Kimball says that he believes, teaches, and confesses. And Dan also uh, took some time to offer his thoughts and opinions uh, reco- regarding the need for discernment in the discernment camp. And uh, and uh, he spoke regarding his own experiences there, and uh, and so I I think you're going to get a, you're going to get a program today that for some of you might be challenging, for others of you it might be refreshing, for others of you I don't know there might be weeping and gnashing of teeth I don't know, but what I do know is this that we are called by Scripture to speak truthfully of others. And if in the process of defending the Christian faith, we make errors, then because we're defending the Christian faith, which tells us that we are to not bear false witness against our neighbors, then we are responsible to Christ with what we say. So even on this program, I take great lengths to exercise discernment in the discernment that I do. Do I pull it off successfully 100% of the time? No. Where I make errors, I have to repent and change what I do. So that being the case, that kind of frames the tone for which uh, you'll be listening to my interview with uh, Dan Kimball, who's one of the early leaders in the, quote, emerging church, not emergent, but emerging church movement from uh, that began uh, in the 1990s with, the, uh, with Leadership Network. Dan was part of that. And uh, in this interview, you're going to hear him in his own voice tell you what it is that he believes regarding key aspects of Christianity. So at the end of it, you should have no questions as to you know what it is that Dan believes, teaches, and confesses. Here we go. Here's my interview with Dan Kimball. All right. On the line, I have Dan Kimball of Vintage Faith uh, Church in Santa Cruz, California. Dan is historically one of the guys who was there in the beginning of the emerging church movement and the emerging conversation going back into the 1990s. Uh, he's a prolific author and public speaker. Dan, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Certainly. All right. So uh, you and I, we went to see James Dean uh, last week. Yes, we did. I had a great time doing it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I want to thank you uh, publicly for, uh, first of all, for contacting me and giving me the opportunity to spend some time with you. We ended up spending six hours together. And uh, and part of that was uh, doing historical sightseeing, and uh, and a large portion of that was getting to know each other theologically. And uh, I've taken some flack as a result of making the public claim uh, that uh, that you're not a heretic and that uh, you actually uh, believe, teach, and confess historic orthodoxy. So I think that'd probably be a good place to start our conversation. What do you think? Okay, whatever is helpful, I will... I will talk about anything. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. All right. Let me let me start with a little bit of history. Um, now, I, I've been somebody who's been writing about and critical of, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, the emerging slash emergent conversation. Which, when it first came out, it was very difficult to see any theological gradations in it. 
And if somebody had asked me a couple of years ago what I thought of Dan Kimball, I would have uh, hemmed and hawed and said, yeah, I'm not so sure there. But then two years ago on your blog, uh, you came out and basically said you were working on a project with other church leaders, and I think Scott McKnight was one of them, and that you all had agreed upon using the Lausanne Covenant as kind of like your theological common ground. And one of the things you said on your blog was that you were uh, working with other church leaders who had a high view of Scripture. And uh, and so when I saw that, uh, that was—I'll be—I'll be blunt. That was—that uh, sent shudders uh, through many of the emerging circles, and and kind of changed a little bit of the conversation. You could feel that there was a tectonic shift taking place. And so, my question for you, right off the bat, is: Do you personally hold a high view of Scripture? Yeah, I mean, I, I always have, and I'm sure if you ask many, you have to define what does high view of Scripture mean, because most people will say they hold a high view of Scripture. Um, you know, I look at it, the Scripture, as the inspired, authoritative, truthful world, Word of God. Um, and so I guess um, I absolutely, absolutely do. And that's why we picked the Wasson Covenant, too, because it talks about Scripture, talks about atonement, salvation, some of the the core historical doctrines of history, of church history. Right. Well, let me read what the uh, Lausanne Covenant says about the authority and the power of the Bible. It says, We affirm the divine inspiration, truthfulness, and authority of both the Old and New Testament scriptures in their entirety as the only written word of God without error and all of and all that it affirms in the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Uh, that's what you believe regarding scripture? Sure. I mean, I never have changed that. I always look at, you know, what God inspired uh, through human beings from the beginning is is exactly what he wanted in uh, for us to have today. And so, you know, my view has not changed uh, in, in most things. That's what's interesting is that probably I don't, I haven't had some like some great theological shifts in doctrine or I'm not now repenting back to a, uh, boy, now I'm believing this. Uh, I, I've, I've been pretty consistent and I just think people have you know, in I would say in your circles, have probably not. I don't believe have done the right research or uh, taken the time to ask me, like you have, or or others, um, to actually ask what do I believe? What do, what does our church teach about this stuff? So, in a sense, uh, they saw that uh, the, you know that when your book came out on the emerging church in two thousand and three, and there's a group of people in there that uh, have a different view of scripture than you do, but that's really not the point of this. Of uh, uh, this interview, uh, but uh, they that it seems that people lumped you in with them and their view of scripture. You've also contributed to other books that uh, have been more in the emergent village camp, and so I, I could see that on the one hand it would be easy to uh, put you in that camp, but yet you've publicly, I mean, and and you know, I I saw it in two thousand and eight. Uh, affirmed a high view of Scripture using the definitions of the Luzon Covenant, which would basically put you in a completely different theological space than many in the... I, I, I don't want to say emergent conversation, because as as you know, as people study emerging, then they understand that it's, you know, over the past few years, it's kind of fractured into maybe five or six different distinct camps, and so it's really difficult to pin it down. But you, on the other hand... Uh, you know, it's clear that uh, if you're affirming the authority of Scripture and uh, as defined in the Luzon Covenant, that we're dealing with a horse of a different color when it comes to you. 
again, if you'd have asked me this in 2002, I would have said the same thing. So that's why I would... Um, that's what's just so fascinating about some of this. And you have to remember, like, the whole emerging church world, in my perspective, in my experience, uh, historically was back in the mid-1990s, it was how do we reach what was then known as Generation X. Mm-hmm. And I was part of a, uh, I'd say, a middle-of-the-road evangelical church based, you know, the senior pastor was from Dallas Seminary, and it was about how do we, and we noticed Generation X, and we don't use that terminology now, and now it's the generation after that, was missing from the church, and they were dropping out of the church. And and there is uh, a group that said, you know, let's figure out how do we reach the next generation. Mm-hmm. And that is why, you know, some communication methods or using art, you know, not in place of sermons, but in addition to sermons, or just, it was rethinking all of those things, yet still um, holding on to the, the core doctrines of historical Christianity in that way. So I think what happens, too, is that, you know, like when Hudson Taylor, you know, his story of when he went over to China, uh-huh. and uh, and when he got over there from, you know, from England, and where he was based out of initially, he then was, uh, he changed his dress, he changed how he looked, he changed, he adopted cultural distinctives of a specific culture over there to then teach about Jesus and and make disciples and because he then was in that culture and what the the people that criticized him were the people from his home base that said why are you doing it like this we don't understand you and then he eventually had to break off and form the China Inland Mission you know because and I think so much of this uh, at least in my particular case I think a lot of it was you know, looking in and saying, like, why are they doing this? Why is he using words like this or whatever, without actually stopping like you did and saying, what is it that you actually teach about in your church? What is it that you are, how do you view Scripture? How do you view atonement? All of these different things. So uh, I think it's pretty as simple as that and also sad that I don't believe people did specific, specific homework on individuals. And you also have to remember this, back in the early days of the emerging church, there wasn't the controversy. And the controversy was about, should you dim the lights? Should you serve coffee? I mean, that was, that was sort of the controversy. The, the, the controversial things developed later on, uh, as different people started, you know, viewing more, uh, all types of different theological views and pushing different things theologically, that developed later not in the very, very early years, at least in my personal experience, and then it did develop for sure. Now, it's it's my understanding uh, through our conversations that when you were involved in uh, the research and best practices stuff that was being discussed in the mid-90s at Leadership Network, that uh, you were really focusing on the practitioner portion of it, and you were not you were not really a part of the the greater theological conversations that were going on you were more you were more involved in the leadership discussing methodology and what it meant to quote be missional yes there was a theological uh um, group i think it was called terra nova uh-huh. but i was not in that group i was definitely involved in you know the practitioner at that time it was how does churches start a alternative worship gathering within their church. That was my primary um, entry into it, because we had a young adult ministry of 
around 800 a thousand young adults in a small, rather small town. So it was how, what's going on there, and that was sort of my entry into it because it was that was my niche, having an alternative worship gathering within a church for the next generation. How that plays out. Okay. Now, uh, I mean, you and I are both Gen Xers. I think um, they. Uh, it was clear in the 1990s, early 1990s. It was really starting to come out. Uh, this uh, postmodern deconstructionism, uh, Jacques Derrida, Foucault, and others, uh, that uh, you know they, they had a completely. It wasn't just that they had a different way of looking at the world, but they had a very deconstructive way of of uh, looking at the foundations of Western civilization. What was your exposure to uh, that type of uh, of philosophical and deconstructive thinking? And uh, did you have any answers to it at that time, or did you know to reject it? I mean, what were your thoughts about it? Yeah, I, I read, uh, the primary book I read was a book that was popular at that time called The Primer and Postmodernism by Stanley Grenz. Right. And I mean, that was kind of probably as, as depthful as I personally studied it. Um, but what it allowed me to do was I was in a, I was in a great Bible teaching church. Um, the pastors from Dallas Seminary, and I'm not a I'm not a dispensationalist in that way, um, as, as my, the, the pastor was at that time. But you know, but the core theology and everything of the church was was there. But what I noticed was I started listening to the local natives, so to speak, of like a missionary does when they go to a a new town or whatever. And I started listening like like a missionary would to local natives, which being the the next generation. And I started realizing that there were some aspects of how we went about church that did need deconstruction. So I actually was deconstructing methodology of church to say, why do we, you know, why do we give a sermon particularly like this? Is it from the Bible, or did it develop through history in certain cultures? Why does, how does a church leadership structure, I'm not just talking about a church having elders or a church having, you know, shepherds in that. I'm talking about like almost tones of leadership, a CEO model, a um, how you define community in, in one culture might be different than how you define community in another culture. And so those were the type of things about the local church that I well, I was deconstructing. Okay. And that way, I found that very helpful because it was like, why do we do what we do here? And if you were a missionary going into another culture, would you then deconstruct, you know, um, American suburban uh, methodology of church, and wouldn't you deconstruct it so that when you went into another culture, you were then, again, keeping your doctrines, but you were then reconstructing uh, how you would go about the mission in a different specific context. So in that way, deconstruction was a good thing. Uh, but again, in my particular experience, it was all about, you know, uh, tones, defining community. How, what does membership look like? How does what does spiritual development look like for a 21-year-old versus maybe a 60-year-old or a 50-year-old? You know, uh, how's their thinking? What about learning styles? A lot of the stuff that in the church I was at was not necessarily spoken about, and I think that's why it was losing connection to the next generation. And so that so in that way, I felt deconstruction very helpful. Okay, so you 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 basically created a missions church, is what you're saying to to people who had more postmodern 
ideas and that grew up in the Gen X culture. They, ha- I mean, uh, I mean, I'll be blunt. I'm very different uh, than my mom is uh, on many different things. There's certain things that are key to me that uh, my parents didn't uh, really share values wise. In fact, I think I'm more I have more in common with my grandparents than I do with my parents when it comes to some cultural values. Is that what you were finding when you were uh, doing your deconstruction of church methodologies? Absolutely. You know, so say, because I was deconstructing a, a 1980s, 19 models style of suburban ministry. And, you know, so I was in a very contemporary church, but that's also why being in such a contemporary church, some of the contemporary methodology of, you know, um, high felt need preaching, three four points of application, uh, the the way the music was done, everything's lit up bright. You know some of those values. What I started listening to, like that wasn't the best environment for learning. Everything was a program to the moment. So those are the type of things that you deconstruct. Just like, you know, and I find this fascinating that you know, like say the the musical instrument, the organ. When it was first brought into the church, the church fought it to keep it out because it was known as a pagan musical instrument that was used to usher in pagan kings. So the church said, how dare you bring in an organ into our church building? It's a pagan instrument with bad influence that you know, deifies kings. And so therefore there is that fight. Then the organ became in the church and accepted and then it becomes like, this is God's instrument. This mm-hmm. is the best instrument of all. When initially it was fought to be, to, uh, to be kept out. So I think you've got to be always thinking like that. Never assume what we're doing is even biblical. You always have to go to the scriptures to say, what is, is our methodology in alignment? Or is, it, is there any disharmony with scripture? You always have to go back to the scriptures to say, can we change forms of how we go about our, the, on the mission? And and then that can then shape it as long as we're not compromising scripture. Okay, let me uh, let me see if I can translate this into Lutheran speak because I'm a Lutheran. Um, we, uh, the congregation that I'm a member of here in Indianapolis, uh, they have a missions church that they support financially in Haiti, and uh, and we have teams from our church that uh, visit our mission church in Haiti uh, several times a year, and when they bring back reports and show the church service that takes place in Haiti, uh, it takes place pretty much in a building that doesn't have any walls, has a dirt floor, some uh, cobbled-together chairs, uh, something that looks like an altar, and uh, they don't have an organ. They sing pretty much a cappella with a drum, and yet we embrace them as a missions congregation, yet culturally their songs, even though they may have the same lyrics, uh, they're, they're sung in, in Creole French and uh, done a cappella without, uh, without an organ. Um, is, I mean, and it really reflects more of the Haitian culture uh, than the American culture, yet the core in the liturgy and the gospel that's being preached is the same gospel. The sacraments that be, are being administered are the same sacraments. Um, is that what you're trying to describe here? Yeah, absolutely. So, say you were to bring that same context uh, or that same that same methodology of people sitting on the floor and a bongo drum, right? And you brought that to to uh, Indiana, where you are at now, and then plopped it into a building here. 
and the same thing was going on, and then people could come in, depending on your circles, you know, and it's like, that's so disrespectful. They are using an, a, an instrument that has demonic origins of jungle beats, and like, you know, the stuff that you read online that can be uh, saying, look what they're doing, that's, or look at, uh, um, look at, why are they disrespecting things? They're not sitting in rows of pews. They're choosing to sit around in a circle. Whatever it might be, like then we then you hear criticism and make assumptions that those things that people are seeing from the outside are disrespectful or because you're not doing it in the the, the way that maybe traditionally a, a church or a denomination or someone grew up accustomed to. And then that becomes a threat, and then all of a sudden... You know, they're not following God, they're not following Scripture, and these criticisms can arise because of those very things. Okay. Well, let, let me take it, let me, let me push it a little bit beyond that, because there were some who adopted these more Gen X cultural trappings in their church services, uh, changed the name from church to cohort, and then went, uh, and then began deconstructing Christian doctrines itself. And uh, it was very clear early on uh, that, you know, who some of these folks were and that they they were not just stopping with methodology, but they were rethinking Christianity itself uh, and the very Word of God and the doctrines that have been confessed by the historic Christian faith. Would you think that those went, those folks, you know, went beyond uh, Christian liberty and freedom in that sense and, and were beginning to deconstruct things that have no business being deconstructed? Yeah, uh, um, again, you, it's the same thing I'm talking about. I'd always, every time we say, like, you know, those folks or this group, you always want to look at each individual, each individual church, and do that. And I understand exactly what you're saying. And I and for me, that is why, see, how you view, this is why we've, we also started a, uh, a new collaboration, and I ended up partnering with some other um, church leaders, is because, you know, how you view atonement also, you know, is how you then view salvation and how you think of evangelism, how you, de- how you determine, you know, someone standing with God. Therefore, how important is the act of gospel, you know, proclamation, and proclamation can be in different ways that you do it. You know, but it drive. I'm driven, and as I think you and I talked about, I'm driven because I was a sinner saved by grace, putting my faith in Christ, and he took on my sin on the cross, rose again from the dead. You know, And the grace and understanding and thankfulness that I have for that, I then am passionate to see other people experience and know, you know, know Jesus. And what, what biblical, and I say biblical because someone else with a different view would say, well, no, I have the biblical Christianity. No, you have the biblical Christianity. You know, so you... Even when you say biblical Christianity, someone else will say, no, um, the way I view it is biblical Christianity. So I'm now deconstructing what I just said. Right. But well, I'm just passionate to see people know who Jesus is and not and and repent and all of the things that the Lausanne Covenant talks about. And I've never, I think for me, I've never changed in that way. So I have, I, if you would have talked to me in 2002 or 2003 or 2004, Probably what I would be saying to you then would be much the same with core doctrines, though now I would be like, oh, I can see how this might be interpreted differently, or 
when you're using, you know, like I wrote an article once about a labyrinth. I know that's got a lot of flack. Leadership Journal talked to me about, um, and they said there's a, a group publishing, which is out of Loveland, Colorado, and it's a reputable publisher. It's a pretty conservative evangelical publisher put out something called a prayer path. And that's what it was called, a prayer path. And, uh, and they set it up at a conference and said, you know, Dan, would you write a, an article about it? So I'm like, sure. And so I went to this thing, never been to a labyrinth before, went to this thing at the conference, and you walked into a room, and they did have, you know, I looked in the room, like, well, it looks like a maze or something, because it had tape on the floor. And then you walked up to one, and then you'd listen. Uh, some of them were recorded. Some of them were written down. You know, and it'd be like, you know, Jesus said this, and there'd be some scripture about something. And it would be a question they would ask you at one particular station of this prayer path. And it would be, you know, just like, you know, uh, he, he, he died for people across. I'd have to go back at exactly what the questions were. But each one had some sort of question that was very, you know, scripturally based or, or you know, what's the static in your life that stops you from taking time to pray? And you sit there like, huh, I need to think. What is, I'm so consumed with my Mustang right now, and I'm so thinking about that, I need to just stop and then maybe take some time to pray. Like, it would just ask you questions. And I wrote this article, and then all of a sudden, I, I had no idea that it was such a controversial thing. And all of a sudden, I'm a mystic because I wrote this article about a prayer path. And then a woman who I even know personally, locally, who was having, um, who was, uh, um, actually not even part of a church locally, wrote a response article that was absolutely, uh, and I use this word um, nicely, but just pretty crazy to read the response of how she was interpreting everything. So you, um, I, I just, again, you always have to look at things. So I would have probably said, I don't know, I have, what's the roots of this? I don't know. All I know is that right now I am, uh, I am praying. There was scripture. There was a Bible open in the middle of this thing. And um, and that's what I wrote about. All right, we're going to pause right there and uh, pay some bills. And when we come back, we'll continue with uh, my interview earlier today with uh, Dan Kimball of the Emerging Church and Vintage uh, Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey! 
You want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Uh, Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they'll get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, discernment takes discernment. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate, the other says, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's continue with my interview earlier with Dan Kimball of Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. Here is the rest of my interview. Well, while we're on the topic, I want to I want to talk about Lectio Divina a little bit, and let me let me uh, give a just a, a smidge of history here because um, I want to make sure that uh, we're dealing with similar definitions. 
Lectio Divina, as it has historically come down to us, has come down through Roman Catholic monastic mystics. And the, and the practice it, itself, historically, basically, it's not just reading Scripture. It, you can randomly pick a passage in the Bible, and you're supposed to kind of scan it until the Holy Spirit supposedly makes particular words pop out at you. And once those words pop out at you, supposedly by the work of the Holy Spirit, you repeat those words over and over and over again, much like kind of a mantra is used in Eastern mysticism to help you get into some kind of an altered state of consciousness, whereby then you can experience the presence of God, so to speak. Um, Was that your understanding of Lectio Divina, and was that what you were promoting in the early days of uh, of uh, you know your tinkering with these different vintage faith practices, and uh, you know if, if so, uh, why? If not, then why? What was your understanding of lectio divina? Yeah. All right. Let's go back to um, being on mission in a particular context. So I'm listening to people who uh, are saying, "Oh, the contemporary." I am not. 20, 20 year olds. I'm not. I am not connecting with the contemporary church. It feels. I mean, these are the very words. It feels like a Tony Robbins business presentation. I can remember that, like a, a pep rally. Um, there's no time to slow down in this worship gathering. It's just like, you know, five songs, video clip, move, move, you know. And I remember listening to that, and then hearing about Lectio Divina. And the Latin word means holy reading, and I was reading the scriptures. So I'm like, wow. I was at a, uh, I was with about six or seven people once in Colorado, and someone said, all right, we're going to do Lectio Divina, and they opened up to a passage in scripture. I think it was, the, I think it might have been the Psalms. I'm trying to remember. And they, you know, everyone's like, all right. And I had never heard of it before, but then that's what it was called. Sit around the circle, and someone just starts. You know, like they open up the Bible, and they read a section. I'm opening up my Bible right now, and they read, say, a Psalm, and it was, "The Lord lives. Praise be to my Rock. Exalted be God, my Savior." That's Psalm 18, uh, 46. And then they'd pause for a moment, just like that, and they'd say, "The Lord lives. Praise be to my Rock. Exalted be God, my Savior." And I think they read two, three verses, and then around the circle. And I'm like, you know, that was refreshing. We didn't, you know, there was no mystical chanting of, like, losing your mind. It was, you're reading a Bible verse three or four times, and it was, and it was actually, and what I, what I realized was it was just, you were calming down for a moment in the rush of meetings and stuff they're about to go into, and I'm like, that was, that was, I loved reading scripture. It was not the emptying of mind, and I was going into some weird meditative state of, you know, whatever, it was reading a Bible verse three or four times, what the heck was wrong with that? And that was my experience and how I defined it as holy reading from the Latin words, and, and actually found that it was a refreshing time, like when you pause in a worship gathering and you read a Bible verse or two or three, you know, two or three times before you might even teach it, or is quieting your heart and reading a verse three or four times. So that is what how I defined it, and practice it, and then heard later that you know it's about that some people and I've never I've never experienced it in any worship gathering any person that I've seen do it where you're you know you go into mindless chants and you're 
goes on. I've never experienced anything but what I just did, reading a Bible verse three or four times, and and that was it. Okay. Well, one of the things that's part of my daily uh, practices, if you, if I hate using the term like that, but uh, if you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, then you know that uh, I frequently send out uh, readings for the day in the scriptures, and there's three psalms, and uh, one of the, the things I've been doing for a long time is praying the psalms, and, and so I have a psalm in the morning that I pray, I have a psalm that I pray at noon, and I have a psalm that I pray in the evening. And uh, it's not just a couple of verses, but I, I, I try to pray the whole psalm. Is that, does that sound similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, so you're practicing Lectio Divina. Oh, no. <laughs> see, uh, you're going to get me in psalm trouble. 130, psalm 136, right? You know, it says, His love endures forever. You know, I'm counting it right now. Mm-hmm. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. 26 times the same thing is repeated in Psalm uh, in Psalm 136. Well, so you do know that Psalm 136 is a responsive psalm, that, you know, there's course, usually... But then, yeah. what, but, but so my point is then, you're saying the same thing over and over there, right? Right, is but that, it's not to that, get you into an altered state of consciousness to calm your monkey mind down or something like that, though. Right, that's what I mean. So when someone says something... I think there's an expectation of something different. Like, and I'll be I'll be open here and tell you the truth about this. I I really don't. If you get to know my character, I don't, you know, name people or try to name. And it's nothing hiding. I'm just like I will speak for myself, right? For our church. Uh, but there was um, I remember, you know, like three years ago, four years ago, uh, something like that. There was, uh, after one of our worship gatherings on a Sunday night, there were two students from Master's College and John MacArthur's University, and they came up to me after, after the Sunday night, and like, you know what, we've got to apologize to you. I'm like, what? And it's like, yeah, we're, they, we just did a whole week-long emphasis on the emerging church in our school. And, and I'm just being blunt here, because I think this needs to be addressed, is that, and they said all of these things, what you would be doing here. And we came here, and you preached for 45 minutes. People had their Bibles. You, you did some songs that were hymns and, and contemporary songs. You're, you know, and, like, it was nothing like we were told this emerging church was supposed to be. And they felt bad because they came up hoping to see some sort of, chant, you know, mindless, I don't even know what they're, you know, what they're expecting, but it was just fascinating to hear that. Or another guy named Matt Slick. I don't know. Do you yep, know him? I know from, Matt. Matt's a friend from CARM Ministry. C A R M. I forget what that acronym spends. Like he shows up on a Sunday, comes into our, you know, and I've since gone on his website, and he is very, very. Uh, I don't know what the correct term would be, but he is very blunt in saying things like he sees them. And uh, and he came to our church gathering, and we happened to be talking about salvation through Jesus. I'm pretty sure it was. I think it was salvation through Jesus alone that night, if I remember right. But, he, you know, so then we end up talking. And he wrote a, you can go on his website, and he wrote an entire review of his experience at our church. And what I respect about that, or respect about when we talk, or respect, is that then people actually take the time if they have concerns or questions, I know they can't travel around like you do because it's your vocational sort of ministry, 
but they certainly could call up the, a church or just wonder before, or wonder sources about things. And so that's what, um, you know, I think that's, that's, so when you're saying like, you know, there's a, whether it's Lectio Divina, sacred reading, holy reading of scripture, if it's practiced like Psalm 136, and you're saying a, a verse or the same thing, oh, that's not, that's not, I can't see how Christ would be displeased with with that. Right. And uh, I, I, if you've listened to this program, I've given examples of other pastors who hang for sure in, uh, in, in kind of the neo-postmodern liberalism, that they embrace the mysticism aspect of it. But just in talking with you over and again on this topic, it's clear that you neither embrace, endorse mysticism, but instead... St- pausing for a second and letting God's Word speak in a way to stop for a moment and think and ponder the things of God in His Word. I, I don't see that that's the same as mysticism, and uh, I, I, if somebody thinks differently, I would like to see the evidence about no. that. But you, you no, you're right. And, and the same thing, like, you know, we, we can't forget that Christianity has supernatural mysticism mysterious, though they're truth, beliefs. We believe that somebody was dead and came back to life mm-hmm. again. We believe in invisible angels and invisible demons, you know, like these things, and they can appear. But I'm like, we, you know, we're not just, there is a sense of mist, I don't, I don't want to misuse the word mystery, because, you know, it, we're, it's a, a um, it's not just a scientific, mathematical existence that we have when you're speaking of the risen Christ and His Spirit in us. So there is a sense of our lives are uh, more than just flesh and blood in that way and tangible things you can touch and knock on. So I, I, um, I'm not sure if I even made sense or why I even said that part of things, but I think you have to define what is mystical uh, in, in many ways, right. Well, let me come back to the Lausanne, uh, the Lausanne Covenant, because I want I want to read to you a section of this because you you've publicly subscribed to this document and said that this is theological common ground that you want to work with other people who have a high view of Scripture. And uh, there, uh, section number three is entitled "The Uniqueness and Universality of Christ." Let me read this. It says, We affirm that there is only one Savior and only one gospel, although there is wide diversity of evangelistic approaches. We recognize that everyone has some knowledge of God through his general revelation in nature, but we deny that this can save, for people suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. We also reject as derogatory to Christ and the gospel every kind of syncretism and dialogue which implies that Christ speaks equally through all religions and ideologies. Jesus Christ being himself the only God-man who gave himself as the only ransom for sinners, and he is the only mediator between God and people. So you've subscribed to this. That's what you believe? You don't believe in universalism? I have, you know, you can go back... um, to my entire ministry vocational year, pre-emerging church, whatever, I teach the same. I've that, that's the only thing I have taught. Um, I've never taught something different than that. So, you know, or believed. And so to say, and that's like, and that's when I get upset 
inside. You know, the way I get upset is I don't internalize it mainly. But you know, when someone says, you know, Dan, you are a universalist, or you think that, I'm like, can you show me where I have ever said that? Show me in anything I've ever written, or my teachings, or you know, a- anything at all that you can ever say that, because that's a major statement to start saying about somebody. You know, and I had this. Let me just I'll give you another experience. There was a major, you know, there's like you know two or three major discerning kind of websites, and then one particular one, they said something that was accusing me of universalism, and uh, and and in thinking all paths lead to God. So I took the time and actually uh, I called up the person on the phone, and then I said. Uh, I want to send you my actual PowerPoint teaching notes from our church, what we used, and my notes, and sent it to this this group of, of that run this website. And then ended up saying, then after they saw it, said, well, you know, like, they couldn't, it was like, even when they got the facts of what I taught and showed them, here's our the, the notes and the PowerPoint, and, and why don't you even read a chapter from one of my books where I actually make a whole case of how to explain to a someone outside of the faith that all paths do not lead to the same God. I have a whole chapter about that. Uh-huh. And they ended up saying, well, and I, you still hang out with people, so you need to take back all of your books or something. I'm like, and I'm realizing that, you know, I don't even know if I can have conversation with with certain types, because it almost seems like they don't want to know that what they're thinking is not true. There's sort of a, a frenzy of, you know, of, uh, of, I don't know what the word, delight in finding things that are wrong and then they don't like to discover that maybe they are wrong about what they're thinking are wrong. That's why I have appreciated, you know, our time that we did get to meet because you were asking me questions and I was delighted to respond to you. And we had disagreements, you know, about things, of course. Yep. And, um, you disagree with some of my methodology or the Druckerite stuff and all of those things, but you know, and, and but I can st- I can still say you know, but we still believe in Christ, the, the things in the Lausanne Covenant, and and these core or essential doctrines of the historical Christian faith, and um, so that's so when you're answering a question about that, I'm like absolutely, and I just wish if people do have questions that they would finally just ask somebody rather than. Uh, make these assumptions that aren't necessarily true. And I think it's rampant in these particular discerning type of websites. So uh, I just, I just, you know, Jesus, uh, I'm giving my little, maybe I'm now off topic, you know, but Jesus said in Matthew 12 that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And people will have to give account on the day of judgment for every word they have spoken. And I would say that, you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the fingers type on blogs and on websites. And and I believe that we will have to give an account for everything that we have said. And we tear down a brother or sister in Christ. I do not, without justifying it through facts, I think there's going to be, in my, uh, I'm not, I'm saying this with, in a general sense, I just think it's a shameful thing when, if I was to do that against someone else, or if someone else does that against others. So. Okay. Well, I'm not a universalist. That was a long answer to your <laughs> to your short question. So. Yeah, I, I I got it. I you know, in fact, I you know, it was pretty clear back in 2008 when you were subscribing to the Lausanne Covenant that uh, 
if you were a universalist and there has to be some new and improved definition of universalist that includes people going to hell, um, uh, which, by the way, it, it, you believe in hell, right? Yeah, I, we, I mean, this is another thing. We, I, it's so funny to read things. We preach on hell a sermon about every single year in our church. I just was down at the outreach convention in San Diego. My whole topic was teaching emerging generations about hell. Last night in our own church, I was reading the horrific-sounding uh, verses you know, about judgment in Second uh, Thessalonians with, you know, about being shut out from the presence of, of you know, the, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You know, and I was pleading with our church last night, and I'm like, these are difficult things to hear and say, but we have to, I, I am, I'm passionate to talk about it, but then I'll deconstruct, now this is important because someone will say, what hell are you talking about? You know, um, I believe we need to deconstruct, you know, Dante's Inferno and the images of hell that have come up through artistic poetry and not based out of Scripture. Right. So that we have, because most Americans today, when they say hell, they're thinking of a cartoon sort of devil with horns, and you know, and he runs hell. Uh, and so I think what our job is is to also deconstruct what hell is culturally. And, you know, Satan is not ruling hell. He would be in hell if hell was created for Satan and his angels. So I think we have to teach correctly what it would be, but then deconstruct what the average American may think of it. And so I'm passionate about that because I am so grateful that I am saved from hell. And that compels me to want to share that with other people. I don't use hell as my driving force of evangelism. You don't see... That I don't think you're making. There's judgment talked about in scripture a lot, you know. But I, I, we speak about it, we teach about it, and I, I, we have to teach about it. So right. <clears throat> you know, Dan, uh, I, I got to tell you, I, you know, it, it's been it. Well, as we were talking about these things, you know, it became so clear that uh, that. You're true to your word in in really proclaiming and defending historic orthodoxy. That uh, that uh, when the scriptures say that there's no other name given by which we must be saved, you give a hearty amen. And that when it, the scriptures talk about all men and women are perishing because of sin, but God loves everyone, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That you again, you give hearty amens to all of this sound biblical doctrine. So uh, here's the question I have for you, and I think you saw some of this, is that when I came out and I said, you're, you're my Christian brother, um, you know, that became a lightning rod, and there were plenty of people who you know, came out of the woodwork and weighed in on the subject. And what I saw is, is that all of a sudden I was experiencing guilt by association. And you know, the, the emails that I received were, it, at times they didn't really make any logical sense but emotionally they made sense it, it, uh, because of you know the, the, there's a strong feeling of betrayal in the in the body of Christ as a result of uh, some of the heresies that have come out through the other you know, through the other wing of the emergent church um but at the same time the the you know I I got to experience some of what you go through on a regular basis so here's my question for you I mean if you could do it all over again kind of you know, knowing what you know now 
What would you do differently? I mean, you know, if knowing what you know now and you had to live through the whole experience again, what would you do differently, uh, you know, in light of all of this? I would say what I, um, what do I would do differently? I would, I think, well, one thing there was, and at first I agreed with it, like, well, we're all, we're all just focus on Jesus. We shouldn't write out a doctrinal statement because doctrinal statements divide or something like that. And initially that sounded very, um, you know, man, we're all about Jesus. And, and I understand that. But then all of a sudden, if you're not starting to ask definitions, how do you define the gospel? How do you define Jesus? How do you define salvation? How do you define hell? How do you define atonement? What you, I, I eventually say, you know what? We, we are all about Jesus, but then you do have to be more explicit in definition of, of, of things. So I, I probably would go back, and um, I think maybe my naivety to some degree was assuming everyone believed, and I'm not just talking about emerging church guys, I'm just talking about in general, everybody still had the same kind of core doctrine stuff, so I think um, I might have been more explicit in defining things more, and the assumption that we're all talking about the same thing, when little by little you can still use terminology, but it could drift into different meanings, and it happened slow. Uh, so I think that was probably a big Thing that I would have changed maybe in my own experience uh, more. But I, I had I was so glad that the whole I mean the emerging church as in 2003 in that time period that, uh, that the church is always going to be emerging. You know, there's not like one emerging church. Church is emerging now. The church was, was emerging in the first century. The church is going to be emerging in in 50 years. And I think our I hope that when when we're when when we sit at and face Christ face to face, and it'll be like, how did you serve me on mission? Well, did you worship me? Did you know? Did you worship? But uh, I want to always be emerging, you know. So I think uh, that's what I'd do different. I think is probably not is be more distinctive in asking certain questions about certain doctrines directly. Because you can say words, but what do they mean underneath those words? That's mm-hmm. probably my biggest thing I would think of. So, to summarize it, you would have you would have been more explicit on the definition of some of those terms. Yeah, because you can say I, I'm into evangelism, but then say like exactly what does that mean? Or I'm into uh, I believe in the gospel, and you know my you know say so what does that mean? So I think you have to do a little more defining uh, today than before. Okay, yeah, I I agree. I think you always have to define terms. Okay, so uh, you you believe Christ is our only Savior. You're not a universalist. You believe in hell, and uh, we talked about this earlier. And 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 that is is that you know I, every time you know one of the things I do is you know, and this is terrible because this is like so non postmodern. But uh, I have a tendency to want to categorize things. You know, I there's certain theological categories that I think historically work out well. But every time I Run your theology through uh, you know my category my category machine. I end up coming up with you being somewhere in the general reformed camp, uh, yeah, some uh, some form of uh, Calvinism. Is that is that is that correct? Is that a, is that a proper understanding of your theology? I mean, I don't identify myself as a Calvinist in, in that way, and I think I Os Guinness. Um, spoke at our, our young adult ministry once, and he came in, and someone asked this question about, 
you know, five points of Calvinism and election and different things. And he said, you know, um, there are scriptural passages that teach that teach both spectrums of this, you know. And he's like to spend uh, much time on it. And I think he used the word silly, and I might I wouldn't necessarily say silly, but I I would say like man, I know the scripture. Making your answer, I wouldn't say like I am a Calvinist. I I would be a uh, I would someone that believes there is those that God has elected, and that's what the scriptures teach. And it seems like there's also scriptures that teach there's human choice as well. And I loved the book that Norman Geisler wrote, and I know maybe some of your listeners don't like him. I don't know. Did he ever? He wrote a book called uh, Was it called Chosen? Uh, Free but not chosen. I'm trying. I'm forgetting the name of the book. And I read that. I'm like, I love the way he put it here because there's a tension here. So that's why I don't necessarily identify I'm a Calvinist or not a Calvinist in that in that way. But I want to. I liked what I was going to said in the way and the tension of the scriptures about those very issues in there. So, so then you you really see you're you're trying to you're still trying to figure out where how how do you define total depravity and and to what extent that that plays in, in... I am born a, I am a born an absolute sinner I I am a sinner I am not saved um you know apart from Christ and so I'm a I'm a depraved sinner I totally you know so if that's what you're asking yes okay in my life and that you know all right. So, uh, all right. Here, this is a question. This is a standard question I ask everybody who comes on the program, and uh, that is, is that uh, you know, two thousand years ago, Jesus is uh, hanging on the cross, and he cries out, "It is finished." What was finished? What was Jesus doing on the cross? Why was he there? In your own words, explain the drama that was taking place and why that even had to happen. He took on he took on our sin on the cross, and his work. Uh, I mean, he was then resurrected again, but he it was his finished work of taking on our sin upon that cross and the work that he did. Uh, I'm assuming that's what you're asking. Well, you know, you, you get to answer it any way you want. <laughs> I mean, you could talk about. I mean, well, here's a question for you: Is there's been a lot of controversy, uh, uh, you know, regarding so-called different theories of the atonement? Uh, you know, the ransom theory, the penal substitutionary theory. And uh, sometimes I think that, uh, personally, it, it's, you know, the Scriptures describe different facets of it. It gives us different word pictures of it. Um, when uh, w- Was Jesus being punished for your sins and mine on the cross? Yes. Okay. And uh, did his blood ransom us? Yes. Okay. I, I look at Romans as inspired by God. I look at Paul as being inspired by God to record what was in Romans for us today. So I take those truths and what he said there as being God-inspired, and that shapes my theological view of what happened at the cross. And so all of us are dead, born dead in trespasses and sins in need of a Savior. Yep. Never taught anything different since I have, for the 20 years I've been in vocational ministry. Wow. Anything else you'd like to say? Just, you know, any, anything, any other burning issues, uh, any other ways in which you feel like you may have been mischaracterized that you would like to set the record straight here at Fighting for the Faith? I would, I would just, I, um, you know, I, I would just say, like, you know, I, I had to, uh, I had to stop looking at some of those discernment websites out there because it felt like, I, and I'm, and I say that I. 
if if I yeah I will say that if I was ever teaching something heretical, I would want to be called out. I would want to, for one, the 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 leaders in our church would not they would boot me out of of leadership. One, uh, I would want to be called out. You want we need each other in the Christian community to be, you know, sharing things and dialoguing with you know you are straying in this area, or Dan, this teaching you said, it didn't quite equate with what we believe Scripture says. I mean, we need each other with that. I want to be called out constantly on anything. So I think that is a healthy thing. Jesus talked about, even if, you know, if a brother or a sister is in sin, you go to them, you talk to them about it. Galatians 6 talks about, yes, we're going to sin. If someone sins in that way, whether it's doctrine or it's a a lifestyle issue, or if you're gossip or greed, you then go to that person and you and you say for the goal of restoration, and I think that should be the tone uh, of of things out there today. And so I would say, like, certainly I want to be. We talked about judgment the other day in our church. I stood in front of our church, like I want to be judged. You know, like like First Corinthians was talking about the need to judge each other in the church for the sake of restoration and holiness. And that's what I think we can do, uh, and, I, and I want to be. But so I'd say, like, of course, always be doing that. But what I think to me is shameful, and what I think is my my opinion, and I believe you can base this out of scripture. You know, when you're looking at things like, um, you know, in, in Ephesians, you know, when it will say things, uh, you know, I, I get very heartbroken. When you read some of the tones and the attitudes, like, and I'm I, I'm not speaking for you right now because this is your listeners, but as an outside viewer, I was I went on your Facebook and I looked at how people that you that follow you responded to you, and I'm just like, you know, out of the overflow of their hearts, their fingers are typing, and I'm just like, how quick to judge people are they, without response, even people that they have trusted like yourself, how you know. You know, it says, "Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your fingertips onto blogs and things, you know, out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that will benefit for those who listen." You know, don't speak, put off falsehood. Speak truthfully for all members of one one uh, one body. In your anger, do not sin. And I can just say, I I think that all of this watchdog discernment ministry would maybe even have a better voice. And I think we that that there needs to be some. You know, true looking at our own hearts and our own t- attitudes, including me, of of how we respond to things. And I'm just like, I looked at your your comments. I'm like, man, it's like piranhas in there. But you put your little finger, t- your toe in there, and oh my goodness, it's like. And then I had three. This is a, I'll finish with this. I ended up contacting offline, you know, on Facebook, three different people. I'm like, you know, any questions? All that were saying that I was either a heretic or whatever. All three have not read anything I've written. They're like, nope, haven't read anything. And the one guy wrote back, I'm sorry, I, sh- I shouldn't be saying these things. And they never even read something I've written. And and there's and there's all goes down to these one or two primary websites. And I can say that I I say this before Christ that there are false things written on some of these websites and that go off as fact and i have had correspondence as i said with one of them and they wouldn't change what they wrote even though i had showed them 
And in one, they even took two of my quotes and they added editorial words into these quotes to then make their case of what they thought I was saying. And I believe that is dishonoring Christ. And I believe that is not honoring other people. Should we call out sin? Should we call out heresy? Totally. I, I, I do agree, especially in the local church context, for those that you know. But, but boy, I, it broke my heart reading comments on your website of how people responded to you who care for you, these people. And it just it was, it was very sad to me reading the heart and the attitudes. I'm actually almost getting emotional here talking about it. So I'm like, I don't think Jesus really, you know, you're a brother to them. Why are they, why are they trying to shame you so quickly on, on your Facebook? So I, I, I know you didn't, I didn't tell you I was going to even say any of that, but boy, it just was emotional even reading that. Um, and I'm not being no wimp. Like you shouldn't call out something. I think you've gotten to know me. I'm no wimp of saying, don't confront a brother in sin or a sister in sin. Absolutely, but we should do it biblically and with the goal of restoration and with a heart of brokenness and compassion, not in anger or self-righteousness. Right. And, you know, let me add to that. And that is, is that the, the people who reacted uh, very strongly in the negative way, um, you know, I challenged many of them on my Facebook wall. I said, can you show me where Dan denied or impugned or deconstructed any of the uh, the cardinal doctrines of historic orthodoxy? And every time I would push for evidence to that effect, um, I, you know, I, I, there was none forthcoming. And I knew that there wouldn't be because, it, you know, I've read everything that you've, I've read every book that you've published. And and you and I have talked about the things that uh, that biblically I think that there's some disagreement on. And uh, when we did that face-to-face, it was done amicably, amicably as brother-to-brother. And, um, you know, I think there's a difference, and there needs to be a marked difference when it comes to uh, when we correct false doctrine, the question that is before us, is the person who is preaching the false doctrine you know, or they have a difference of opinion. Does this touch on a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith? Yes or no? Is the person who is preaching this a brother in Christ who may be erring? Uh, yes or no? These are important things that have to to come into play because there's a difference between restoring and correcting a Christian brother, and there's a uh, and rebuking somebody who is f- flagrantly mishandling God's word and teaching false doctrine. And uh, what I've found in my conversations with you is a marked difference, is, is an openness and a willingness to hear a different point of view, and, uh, and a willingness and, and an openness to being corrected and uh, being shown if you've done anything wrong. Because I, I, when you say that you would repent, I, I think you really do mean it. I mean, there, I don't, there's nothing in our, in our conversations, either in email or face-to-face, that would, uh, that would make me believe that uh, this is some kind of a ruse on your part just to make me think that you're orthodox so that you can somehow smuggle in uh, emergent heresies. I don't see that at all. Uh, and part of the difference would be, like, my, my temperament and my tone is different than, other, than maybe yours or someone else's. And so you can also make judgments by uh, someone who has on mission and their approach and their tone about something. Or we, if someone out there said, you know, like last night as I preached and, and spoke, uh, we had, you know, an artist is creating an art piece on the side of the stage, you know, in, in, in that's collaborating with what I'm talking about. And someone may say, 
that's wrong for you to do that, and I will defend doing that. I will say it's not breaking scripture. It's actually helping people learn that a more visual learn. I mean, you're involving someone else from the church into the creative process of, of proclaiming truth through this art piece, and we may disagree about something like that. And I'll say, and we can argue about it, and I'll say, I, I, we, we might have differences, and I think, and that's all right. But if what I was teaching about was against, you know, some sort of core historical doctrine of the Christian faith, then I'd say, man, call me out on that. And I also, like, I share this example with you, and I met, we met was on another one of these websites. I was accused of being a witch or something like that. And it was like I had a salt crystal. And I'm using this for an example because these are examples I'm trying to show your listeners of how to properly discern what is accurate in these things. And uh, and it was like a witch agrees with Dan Kimball or something like that on, on one of these websites. And I'm reading the article, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, here's what we actually did. We spoke about, we were teaching from Scripture about being the salt of the earth and, you know, being the salt and light, what Jesus was talking about. And then we had a world map that was out on, we laid out on a table, uh, a couple of world maps, because the church is too big to just do one. And then we had salt crystals, like actually, you know, Morton's salt crystals, big pieces of salt. Uh, actual salt, and and just said, because there's some people that tact will learn through doing something, you know, tact, tactile-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they walked, and we walked over, and they took a, a salt crystal, the Bible verses right on the table about being salt of the earth, and they would place the salt on a country, and then pray for the Christians in that country to be the salt of the earth where they are. And then I'm reading that, and I'm like, that that gets equated to witchcraft, or you know, and then seeing like a little frenzy of like witchcraft, and I'm like, that this is not good. I can't imagine. Yet they may not understand that because for them, putting a salt crystal, a, a piece of salt you know, on a map, is wrong. You know, um, and you're praying the script. You know, it's just like I just wish people would t- have enough intelligence to actually think through some of these things to see if it is true or not. And not and I feel bad because you know like grandpas and grandmas that read this stuff and then they're like, it's crazy. I'm like, boy, there's I, I believe that some people will be held to account of how they have represented brothers and sisters in Christ. And I and I I I think we better clean that up. And I hope you do too and I hope I do too if as I speak of someone, should we still call out if there are false doctrines, if if we're going outside of what the what we believe the biblical doctrines of the faith are, absolutely. I keep saying this. Call me out any time on any doctrine. Yeah. Call me up. Email me. Uh, say you know if I don't repent, post something on the blog. I don't care. But do the homework to see if what you're reading is accurate or not before you come to a judgment. Right. Well, this is one of the reasons why on this program I play sermons in their entirety. I don't I don't I don't like to do sound bites because so many times, I mean, I've seen people do this with the Bible. They'll take they'll rip half sentences or verses out of context and then make the Bible say things that it doesn't say. And so one of the things that I do here on this program is is that when I when I play a sermon or I play something that somebody's teaching, I try to give as much context as humanly possible so that you that I'm not misrepresenting the person when I'm critiquing their theology or their teaching because 
if I'm if I'm if, if if I'm building a straw man and then beating up on the straw man and say, see that person twist God's word, and what I've done is I've twisted what they've said into something they didn't say, then I'm really the one at fault, not them. And yeah, I it, think you should do that with other other these discerning websites. When you start looking at some of these articles that they have written and start doing the same thing about what they're preaching in addition to the other people that you're looking at. Maybe we, do, maybe we need to do some self-evaluation of those that are holding the, the guardians of the faith you know, attitude and, and things. And I think we need to guard the faith. We need to guard doctrine. And then start doing the same with some of them. I don't know. I'm just... I think we need to do some self-evaluating here with with this stuff. Well, I I one of the, I'm working on a piece that I, I'm calling a call for discernment in the discernment camp. Yeah. And uh, the idea here is is that there there really truly is bad teaching and doctrine out there, and uh, you know the the lesson that I've learned in in you know my first impressions of you to uh, a cleaned up impression of you. And your willingness to communicate to me the truth and and give me more data so that I had an accurate view of you, the the time that you took to meet with me personally and allow me to ask you tough theological questions and to challenge you on some of your methodologies and and the humble attitude that you've taken all led me to conclude, uh, contrary to what some people have said, that you're not a heretic, you're a Christian brother— and that our posture towards you needs to be one of, if there's something that you're doing wrong that we think is biblically incorrect, then the posture needs to be of of restoring and correcting a brother, but not throwing you under the bus or lumping you in with a group of people who are attacking, impugning, deconstructing, denying, and obfuscating the uh, what the Christian faith is. Because over and again in my conversations with you, you affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way, that he died on the cross for our sins, that there is judgment, and that, and that we need to—that there needs to be uh, passion and, and an urgency in reaching people with the gospel. I mean, I even got that out of, you, out of the, uh, the book that you wrote about uh, they, they Love Jesus But Not the Church and the video uh, teaching that you've done along that line. Over and again, I see somebody who's passionately challenging Christians— to find a way to reach those who are going to hell with the biblical Jesus and uh, and not another one. I thought it was unique on your part that you see that uh, the, even the distorted views of Jesus that are out there in the general culture create a common ground that we can then uh, use to uh, teach people about who Jesus really is. Well, and, right, and that's when I even saw that someone on your website or your Facebook posted a clip to the Day Like Jesus interviews that I did, and started mocking it and saying, "Who is the, you know, how would a missionary go about their thinking?" And you don't leave them with the, the the book they like Jesus from some of these people that have never even opened it. The they and they like Jesus, but not the church, are those that don't know the biblical Jesus. Mm-hmm. But Christians, in that sense, that uh, uh, though there's probably Christians understandably that don't like certain churches too. But the, the thrust of that whole book and those interviews were all about, as a missionary goes about and listens to people's opinions, then you respond in a strategic way to whatever culture you're, you're doing. And that's what that is, and it's just so funny to watch reactions about things uh, in that way. You know, if, if they were open that book, they'd read, I have a, two pages on who I believe Jesus is, then I'm, you would probably sit there and say amen to the whole thing. Um, 
And, I just, and it's not just, I don't think this whole thing to just be about Dan Kimball here. There are people on a lot of these discernment websites that I, that are in the same, uh, same situation as me, who I know their churches, I know what's going on behind the scenes, and they may have a missionary context of how they go about things that then may cause suspicion by these certain discernment groups. But then when you do ask them, you'll find out, like, oh, they do hold to the cardinal doctrine, the historical orthodox faith. And, you know, I just think you have to be careful in how, how you go about doing that and to evaluating it correctly or evaluate by uh, about not just the surface things is very important. So it's not just me who the people I'm defending myself to some degree and our church because I represent our church. Uh, I also think you know, it's not just me who have watched people get torn down, and, and I think un, un Jesus-like and unscriptural and untruthful ways out there. So I hope the discernment groups will rise up to take a little more accuracy in in how they go about things, and a little more heart and Jesus-like tone in in how they go about things. Never avoid the truth but make sure when they're saying truth that they understand what the truth is they're even talking about. Right on. Couldn't have said it better myself. But then again, I guess I'm just a heretic now that I said amen to that. So, <clears throat> sorry. No, that yep. was that was an overstatement. But, Dan, uh, I, I, again, I, I can't thank you enough for your time and for your generosity with your time and for your candidness in uh, coming on the program. And, uh, you know, I understand you're going to be taking some time off and uh, enjoying a little bit of R&R, and I, uh, my prayer for you is that you will uh, be able to recharge your batteries appropriately. Yeah, we're going away for a couple weeks. It's our anniversary, and I'm um, lo- looking forward to it, wrapping up the next book I'm writing on, and I will be uh, have fun. And you get rest, too what you're doing. I, I will, and I told you I was sending you a Christmas gift, but uh, you know, it, 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 it'll probably be waiting for you at your church when you get back from your vacation. Okay. At our church building. We are the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. <laughs> right. I, I understand. The church that. building. I, that the, the address where Vintage Faith meets in Santa Cruz. That, yeah, that's what I meant. That's that's correct. Yep. You know, and I sure you, I wish you. Um, I love when you end up talking to people and do interviews. When I've when I've been tuning in lately, I think that's the best way to go about things is talk to the individuals themselves, like you've been now doing. And I think that is the best approach. So thank well, you for thank you for saying let's talk on the phone, and thank you for thank you for challenging me in the ways that you challenged me. You know, and I hopefully I challenged you back with some things. You know. About you know, it's like we talked about some of the methodology, and methodology stems from a, there's theology and methodology. I'm aware of that, but uh, I look at you as a, a brother who also uh, believes the same core doctrines of faith, and I hope um, same thing back. And and please for you too, have heart, challenge people, have heart. You know, may your lips be of of one of uh, you know of love and how you go about things, and let's let's represent Jesus in a right way in how we talk about people. That'd be me too, every all of us. Amen. Thank you, Dan. All right. And did you watch Rebel Without a Cause on on a? I watched both East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause, and he, and he, let me give you a quick synopsis. East of Eden, fantastic movie. Rebel Without a Cause. Um, 
yeah, I, my daughter watched it with me, and we both were basically saying not the best script. And and the fact that Thurston Howell the Third was his father in Rebel Without a Cause kind of distracted. I, I totally because you think of him in Gilligan's Island, and yeah. And so, no, but it's fascinating. The thinking of like again culturally that was that movie was from nineteen fifty three, fifty four. Fifty uh, uh, Rebel Without a Cause came out the same year that James Dean died. Fifty four. F- right? Five. 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 You know, but you think the teenage phenomenon was just being birthed at that time in American suburban culture. So you place that movie in its context of the teenage world. You know, there were no youth ministries at that time. There were no, even how churches functioned, the teenager was being born in how we look at culturally at teenagers right around that time period. So it's fascinating. Well, I'll tell you what, next time you need somebody to uh, offer a, a different point of view on the whole culture thing, you know, and and wants to give a historical explanation of the concept of Lex Arendi, Lex Credendi, Lex Vivendi, I'm your guy. Just want to let you know. <laughs> All right. Well. A little I... shameless self-promotion there, you know, because I, I love being able to get, to give a slightly different perspective on that. And if you're if you're ever in Indianapolis and you're looking for a completely culturally irrelevant church— I got one for you. So. Well, every every part, everything we do in our church was culturally relevant at the time it was birthed. You know, so I'm sure what your church was in the, the specific whenever it was birthed in the denomination or ever your history is there, it had cultural meaning at the time it was birthed. And it probably was very missional in what they did to end up doing what they're doing that we then hold on to for many years. If you know what I'm saying there, so yeah, that, that this is a completely yep. different conversation. And if we start on this one, it'll be another hour. And yeah, no. <laughs> All right, next time we meet, we shall have that discussion. We shall have that discussion next time. But uh, Dan, I look forward to uh, meeting with you again. All right, thank you so much, Chris, and have a wonderful rest of your week. And may we honor the Lord Jesus and represent Him as His body in this world as we serve Him on mission. Amen. Thank you. Amen. So there you have it. That was my interview with Dan Kimball of Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California, one of the leaders of the emerging church movement. What I'm going to do, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, um, yeah, I might even put a PDF together here that has the links. Um, I, you know, I, I think I might do that. Um, what I'm going to do is I've uh, found uh, the uh, article written by Matt Slick regarding uh, Dan Kimball, uh, Matt Slick of uh, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, CARM, that Dan referenced. And I'm also going to send out a link to a recent article that Dan Kimball did on uh, on the truth about hell, and uh, that I think will also help uh, y'all in uh, making your assessment regarding Dan Kimball. So what did you think? I yeah I told you it would be interesting and it would be challenging. I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins.